Our scripture reading this afternoon is from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the third chapter, the first 14 verses. For those of you who want to follow along if you brought your Bible or if you want to find one in the pew. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If any man thinks he has reason more than me, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this resurrection from the dead, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would come in our midst and enable the word of God to speak to all the people of God. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the summer of 1985, and I was asked to serve at St. John's Episcopal Church on Johns Island, South Carolina. I bet you can tell by my accent that I wasn't raised or born in the South. I had never been anywhere in the South for a significant period of time. I had never heard of Johns Island, South Carolina. The rector left and gave me the parish while he was gone. I was, to put it mildly, not in my comfort zone. But I heard two phrases early on when I got there that summer that I'd never heard my whole life. And even I could figure out that they were significant because I heard them again and again and again. And apparently there were only two kinds of people on Johns Island, South Carolina. There were Kamyas and there were Benyas. Only trouble was I had no idea what that meant. And so after three or four weeks of hearing these two phrases, there was one older woman who looked like she at least liked me and thought I was cute. And so it looked relatively safe. I was done greeting people at the church door, so I went up to her and I said, I I have a question for you. Uh, Can you tell me 
what, what a kamya is and what a benya is, and she looked at me and didn't even hesitate. She said, oh, a kamya is someone who just came here, and a benya is someone who's been here. This wasn't particularly helpful to me, but I could tell by the way these phrases were being thrown around that uh, being a benya was really good, and being a kamya was not good. And she also didn't hesitate as she followed up, looked me straight in the eye, and she said, oh, before the Revolutionary War. And she was absolutely serious. Now, I begin with that story because what interests me about it is where people find their sense of status and significance. And in South Carolina, on a place like John's Island, it's all about lineage. lineage. It's all about heritage. It's about your name and your family and how long you've been there. And if you're a Benya, you rate. And if you're a Kamya, it doesn't matter what you do, you're never going to make it. And that sense of what is significant and that sense of status drives enormous parts of the social network, even to this day, of the more rural parts of Johns Island, South Carolina, where you can find people like shrimp farmers and tomato farmers, among many other things. Now, I want you to think about that question for a moment, because what interests me in the purposes of our time this afternoon is this. Where do you gain your status? Where do you gain your sense of significance? Where do you gain your sense of worth? One of my friends told me the other day he'd finished his taxes. I felt inferior. I hadn't even started mine. He was significant. He had worth. I didn't because of something that he did. Well, think about the reading that I just gave you for a moment and think about this phrase, which is my focus, where Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. That phrase and the reference to righteousness is a reference to having a right relationship with God. Paul is after the significance that comes from having a right relationship with God. And in order to get that right relationship and to have an assurance of that status, there's a whole series of things that he names that he grew up learning to do, that he was told to do in order to rate, in order to make it, in order to qualify in his day to be a Benya and to have arrived. It's an interesting list. They're rituals. They're things that he did. Circumcision. There's race. Jewish heritage. Not just Jewish, but did you catch it? Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew born of the Hebrews. Religion and faith. Rules. Pharisee. Very strict. As to the law and the challenge of being righteous according to the law, Paul says he was blameless. He was going to get it right. He was going to do what was necessary and his reputation in the community, which is the last one, is that he is blameless. This is a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He does what is necessary to keep his relationship with God right. Rituals, race, religion, rules, and reputation. Fascinating list of places to find your significance. But what this passage is about is that's where Paul found his sense of significance and thought he could find how to be right with God before. But something happened to him that entirely changed his mind and indeed entirely changed his life. And that was in the middle of noonday prayer, being the good Jew that he was on the road to Damascus, he was praying 
And can you believe it? God showed up in the middle of the liturgy. He has a way of doing that. And as a good Jew, he knew that uh, God dwelled in unapproachable light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet, in his eyes of his heart, he could see this light. But what he heard was this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, he says. And the answer comes back. The shocking answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul's entire world is turned upside down. All of the transistors and circuits in his computer and circuitry board are smashed to smithereens. And he has to start the whole thing over. And he says that from that moment forward, he had a righteousness that was not his own. A righteousness that didn't come from ritual or race or religion or rules or reputation. There was nothing that he could do to get it fixed and to be assured that it would remain fixed. Because that's the hard thing about being a Benya is you can be a Benya but you can slip. You cannot quite be the right kind of Benya. If it's based on human effort and human strength, there's always a sense of doubt and never a final sense of assuredness. And what Paul wanted was a fixed sense of secured, right relationship with God. And he found it in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ did for him, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Christ did for Paul what Paul could never do for himself. He suffered the penalty that the law called for. He made him right with God. And when he looked into the light, he heard not what every Jew would be expecting to hear. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. He heard, I am Jesus. And from that moment on, he learned that Jesus and Jesus' righteousness and the relationship that he could gain only by trusting in what Christ did for him would make him right with God. So I ask you the question that changed Paul's life. Where do you find your sense of right relationship with God. Do you have a sense with Paul that the way to be right with God is not a righteousness of your own? Let me reflect on that question with some examples. Two from history, one from our day. The first one is my preaching hero. His name was Charles Simeon. He lived from 1759 to 1836. He was the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years. And as some historians describe him, he single-handedly changed the face of Christianity in England simply by being a parish rector and by preaching the gospel and by teaching the Bible for 54 years faithfully. But that only happened because the same thing happened to Simeon that happened to Paul. He was an undergraduate at Cambridge. And in those days, we're now back mid to late mid 18th century in the 1700s, right? Holy Communion for all Cambridge students was compulsory. Simeon was an undergraduate at Cambridge. He'd been there three days and he was informed to his horror that he was required to go to Holy Communion. He writes in his diary as follows. It was but the third day after my arrival that I understood that I would be expected in the space of about three weeks to attend the Lord's Supper. What? said I. Must I attend? On being informed that I must, the thought rushed into my head that Satan himself was as fit to attend as I. And that if I must attend, I must prepare for my attendance there. 
So he went to read the book that all the religious people that he respected told him to read. Something called The Whole Duty of Man. It was described by the great Puritan William Cooper this way, a repository of self-righteousness and pharisaical lumber. The entire book reinforced Simeon's sense that he needed to do it and to work at it and to get it right, and he was still stuck with that nagging sense that it wasn't enough. Out of frustration, he turned to a book by Thomas Wilson entitled, and I quote, Instructions for the Lord's Supper. He was deeply spiritually agitated. He had a sense that Holy Communion represented the holy, and he couldn't do it unless he did it the right way. And the closer the date came, the more the sense of falling short was agonizing him, keeping him up at night. And he's reading through this work, and all of a sudden his eyes, and this is where history changed at this moment, catch one phrase in the, in the, in the book. You know that about books, right? Books change history because it can be years later from when they're written. All of a sudden one phrase can catch one mind and change that mind and change that life. And here's what Simeon read. The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. Again, the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. The writer himself, an Anglican, was talking about the Old Testament practice of the so-called scapegoat, if you remember it, where once a year the high priest would confess the sins of the people of God over the head of a goat and then send the goat out into the wilderness. And Simeon reads this and he thinks about Eucharist and he thinks about himself and he thinks about Christ and he starts to ruminate and process. He writes in his diary, The thought came to my mind, What? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head, then God willing, I will not lay them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, he says, and it was Holy Week, how ironic, when he was stuck going to, uh, to Holy Communion. And on Wednesday of Holy Week, I began to have a hope of mercy, he says. And on the Thursday, that hope increased. And on Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday morning, Easter Day, April 4th, I awoke with these words on my lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. More than two decades later, in his diary, he wrote this. I look forward to Holy Week as I do every year with peculiar delight. It has always been a season much to be remembered, but for me, not only because of the stupendous mysteries which we commemorate, but because of the wormwood and the gall which my own soul tasted 28 years earlier, and the gradual manifestation of God's unbounded mercy to me, till on Easter Day I was enabled to see that all my sins were buried in my Redeemer's grave. There is a man who doesn't have a righteousness of his own. From the life of Billy Graham. I guess one of the reasons I like this story is because it's about small southern towns. And I go through them all the time in my current time of work. And you may know enough about small southern towns to know about speed traps. They're dangerous places. There's a place called Cottageville. If any of my friends are ever visiting and they're going through Cottageville, they get a long lecture from me. 
Well, it was the first ten years of Billy Graham's ministry. He was in a small southern town. He went too fast. The lights went on. And he was a bit miffed to be informed by the police officer that he couldn't pay his ticket. He had to appear, appear in court. So here's Billy Graham in court. And the line was long. And it was a busy day. And the judge asks, as the next person comes up, guilty or not guilty, as he looks at the charge. And Graham pleads guilty. And the judge, who's been looking down at the paper the whole time, says very authoritatively, that'll be $10, a dollar for every mile you went over the speed limit. At which point the judge looks up and is shocked to be looking into the face of Billy Graham, whom he has heard of. He recognizes him. You have violated the law, the judge says. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. He takes out a $10 bill from his own wallet, attaches it to the ticket, pays Graham's fine, and then when Graham is done and he gets a break, he goes up to Graham and says, I'm taking you out for a steak dinner. Billy Graham, for the rest of his ministry, would tell that story and say this, that is how God treats repentant sinners. You are guilty of speeding, there's a fine that needs to be paid, someone else pays it for you, and to boot they take you out for a steak dinner. Righteousness not of his own. A restoration of that which is right, which is not his own. The last one, which is my favorite one, is from the time of Queen Elizabeth. One of the things you may know about Queen Elizabeth, and for those of you who have seen the movie, which I'm sort of partially okay with, and the fiery red hair of the actress who plays the queen, you may know that she was a marked woman her whole life. Everybody was trying to kill her. She couldn't trust a soul. And on one particular day, there was a woman who dressed as a male page and secreted herself in the queen's boudoir and she had a poignard in which she was which she was going to take and stab queen elizabeth to death and kill her but the young lady who was involved in this plot did not know enough to know that the queen was nervous and carefully thinking she was very she was a formidable figure she had her servants always whenever she went into dress check all of the places to see if there was anybody hiding and her servants found this woman and the poignard. Can you imagine the moment, if you know anything about Queen Elizabeth? The would-be assassin there, completely caught in front of the queen. Her situation, utterly hopeless. And as the story goes, she threw herself down on her knees, and she pleaded and begged the queen, as a woman, to have compassion on her. Queen Elizabeth, as only she could do, looked at her rather coldly and quietly and said this, If I show you grace, what promise will you make to me for the future? There was a long pause. The woman looked up to Queen Elizabeth, to Queen Elizabeth, and said this, Grace that hath conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. Queen Elizabeth caught the idea at the very moment she said it. And she said this, You are right. I pardon you of my grace. And as the story goes, she was one of Elizabeth's most devoted servants for the entire rest of the Queen's reign. Not a righteousness of her own. Where is your status coming from, brothers and sisters? It's all about mercy. It's all about grace. No ritual, no race, no religion, no reputation is going to be enough. God has done it all. And in that righteousness and in that gracious gift, we can rest. In Jesus' name, amen. I now send you forth with a blessing.
as I've been instructed to do. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge of God and of His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and may with you this afternoon and forever. Amen.